all you beautiful people, and welcome to the Glorious in the Mundane podcast. I'm your host, Christy Knuckles. Happy March to you. Happy almost spring. This is always such a month of anticipation, isn't it? Just to shoot the breeze about the weather real quick, because I don't know, that seems like a good icebreaker. We have gone back and forth between a monsoon here in Nashville and pretty much the North Pole. Literally a few weeks ago, there were areas of Nashville that were on alert that might have to like evacuate because of flooding. That's how much rain we've had. So yeah, these areas, especially areas of the city that had to evacuate back in the flood of 2010 that happened here in Nashville, they were on high alert. Our family moved to Atlanta in 2008, so we actually missed the 2010 flood here in Nashville, so we kind of don't know what the high alert is about. In fact, we didn't even come back for a visit any time around when that flood happened, so we've kind of had to Google what happened here in Nashville. And if you Google it, the Nashville flood of 2010, you won't even believe your eyes. It's hard for me to even fathom that it took place here. There's very little evidence that I can see that it ever even happened, but I can understand why people are on high alert a few weeks ago with all the rain after I did a refresher on what actually happened. So in 2010 in Nashville, they got just shy of 14 inches of rain in just 36 hours. And then it's my understanding that the Cumberland River here was a huge part of the flooding that lasted like long after this big push of rainfall came. The river crested at 52 feet, which flood stage is 40 feet, FYI. And I guess I just did not remember that 26 people actually lost their lives in Tennessee and Kentucky because of this one flood. That's devastating and honestly hard to believe, but I think important to remember and speak out loud. 11,000 homes were completely destroyed or damaged. The Grand Ole Opry House stage was completely underwater. And our Shermerhorn Symphony venue that I've told you about before that I love so much, when it was all said and done, they said there was 24 feet of water that entered that place the week that followed the storm. It engulfed two Steinway grand pianos and a $2.5 million pipe organ. And we know a lot of people that were affected by the flood. My husband had a couple of friends who are in the music business who lost all their guitars in the flood. There's like these facilities here in Nashville where musicians basically like have these huge lockers where they can store all their guitars. People like Vince Gill and Keith Urban, they have all these guitar collections and they keep them there. But Nate had a couple of friends who play for people like Keith Urban and Vince Gill, and they found out that the entire facility where all their guitars were was completely underwater. But this friend of Nathan, he wanted to kind of settle the matter and go check on it. And he told us that He jet skied down I-65 to go check on his guitars, and that's when we kind of knew what they were dealing with when he told us that, and the fact that he said that he jet skied over the huge barbed wire fence to, like, confirm that the place was, like, underwater. So that's the five-wing investigator coming out in me just then, (laughs) but it made me realize why people were super cranky about all the rain around here and kind of nervous and on edge. I was getting all of this by text message because the whole time it was, like, monsoon here in Nashville, our little family was snow skiing in Utah. (laughs) We have some friends that live out there and and had another family offer us their home to stay in for free that's sort of by our friends. So we took advantage. It was very spontaneous. In fact, it was actually pretty last minute. And we just called it our winter break. 
and we had such a sweet time resting and playing together. And we had not been snow skiing in about four years, so we wanted to go before too much time had passed because we wanted the kids to not forget how wonderful it is. Nathan and I grew up skiing much of like our middle school and high school years, so it's something that we both love and have always enjoyed doing together. And so we wanted to introduce it to our kids, so we did that four years ago. And I will say this, if you ever take your family and your kids have never skied, or if you've never skied, definitely invest in like a half-day group lesson for your family. Your kids will respond so much better to a ski instructor, trust me. And by lunchtime, our kids pretty much had the hang of it. And so that was like four years ago, like I said. So this time around, they kind of, it was like riding a bike. They remembered. So we just kind of had to get them in their skis and on the snow and teach them again kind of, you know, how to stop, how they needed to feel as far as sort of being in control. And then we were golden. By that afternoon, we were all skiing together. So that one half-day lesson four years ago really paid off. And it's just reminded us that it's one of our favorite things to do as a family. It's something that's really fun with tweens and teens because you can kind of stay in a little pack for the most part. But then part of your pack can kind of take some harder slopes down while the other part of your pack kind of stays on the easier slopes. But what's great is that it spits you out in the end at the very same spot. And so you can all ride the lifts back up together as a team. So Utah had record-breaking snow this year. Thankfully, not rain. Record-breaking snow. And looking out the window of our cabin, there was a snowdrift that I promise was taller than me. It had to have been over five and a half feet. It was absolutely a breathtaking winter wonderland, and we're so grateful that we got to go see it. I think one of our favorite things about skiing together is how tired you get together. We kept talking about this. So you go out and you expend all this energy together, and it's so much fun, and it's kind of challenging at the same time. But then the slopes close about 4 p.m., and by then, you are done. And the car ride home is like nappy nap time. But our favorite thing to do is buy groceries for the week, and we eat most of our meals at the cabin, and we eat around 6. And then about 8.30 p.m., it feels like midnight to your body. (laughs) And it's the best kind of tired, like I said, because you kind of, you worked your body the whole day, you were outside, and then you eat a big meal, and then the whole house shuts down by like 9 p.m. You're like bears in hibernation. It's absolutely glorious. Anyway, skiing always reminds me of spring because growing up, our ski trips were always in March during spring break. We would leave Oklahoma, where I'm from, for like a week in, you know, mid-March. And then we'd come back one week later, and it would be like starting to be warm. There would be grass filling up, you know, and the daffodils are coming out to greet you. I saw mine trying to peek out this week already. And, you know, it's North Pole here this week, so I've been telling them to try to wait it out a little bit. But we've been preparing for a little bit of growth out here at Keeper's Branch. Nathan actually spent some time on Saturday in some of the flower beds and, you know, doing what you have to do like in late winter to prepare your plants to somehow flourish in the spring, even though they look terrible right now. We're both just looking at each other like, Seriously, there's no way they're ever going to (laughs) return. But regardless, we're preparing the way, trusting that somehow they will. But I can't help but feel sort of the same way about my heart. There's places in me that seem like 
they've been lying dormant for the time being, and I'm not sure how they will reawaken, but I'm trusting and preparing regardless that they will bloom again. I was meeting with my friend Savannah here in town this past week, and she said something that was so interesting to me that pertains to worship, which, as you know, is our theme for this season, for the rest of the season, come magnify the Lord with me. I was telling her about the first time that I can remember that I ever raised my hands in worship, that it was this marked moment in my life when I was in high school. I was probably 17. And she had something really beautiful to say after I told her about it. But before I tell you that, I think it's important for you to know sort of the backstory of, I believe, kind of what caused me to lift my hands that day. The church that we were attending as a family at the time, again, I was 17, it was called Liberty Church, and it was in the Tulsa area, and it was this place where God had led our family during a very pointed season of restoration. I've shared with you before a little bit about my parents and our story and that God has done a really great work there over the years. And the gist of it is that there was a breaking, and that breaking of our family was extremely hard and painful. But if it were not for the breaking, I don't think that we would have experienced the tangible grace of God like we did in those days. Maybe we would have another way, but I think there's power in embracing the way in which God chooses to reveal Himself to us. It doesn't have to be focused on the way, but the focus really being just that He has revealed Himself to us and that there's power in embracing that even when it's painful. I don't know that I would have fully seen what I was able to see in those days if not for how fractured it all kind of was, and if not for that refiner's fire that we experienced. It reminds me of that fire that I've told you about before that we learned about when we went to visit Lost Valley Ranch last summer. And as we spent time riding horses with the Wranglers there, they told us about that massive fire that happened in 2002. It was the largest forest fire in Colorado history that spread across 140,000 acres. I know this is like the second disaster that I brought up in one podcast, but (laughs) it really is fascinating to me to think about. Lost Valley was actually miraculously spared. Actually, when you sit and look at the bowl sort of that Lost Valley sits in, you can look up and you can see this perfect ring, 360, around the entire property where the fire stopped all the way around, completely sparing that beautiful place where God has moved over the years in so many people's lives. But as we were riding, it was breathtaking, the view, and the Wranglers pointed out that we wouldn't have that view if not for the fire. We can see literally for miles upon miles upon miles as we're riding, and they pointed out it's because we don't have all those trees blocking that view. They say it will take over 100 years for that forest to actually grow back. But in the meantime, God has brought such clear vision out of those ashes. Have you ever thought about that before? That could actually be a pretty powerful journal entry for all of us, or several journal entries, to go down that path and thank God and give Him praise for the floods and the fires in our lives. It kind of reminds me of Psalm 124. You'll have to read it. It's one of the songs of ascent. 
these were these collection of songs that are in the Psalms that were believed to be sung by families possibly on their way to the temple to worship. Isn't that beautiful that there were songs of sort of remembrance that prepared their hearts on their way for worship, like worship that prepared them for worship? I think that's amazing. This was one of my favorite things that my dad did on the weekends when I was growing up. He owned some pretty great speakers in our house, and he would blast worship music through those speakers often, as especially as we were getting ready for church on Sunday or sometimes on Saturdays, especially when we would have to like clean the house. He would crank up these albums. One record in particular, it was called One More Song for You. It was by the Imperials, and he would blast that. It was like songs of our faith. And hearing those words, especially as a young kid, I realize now it really helped me put language around my own faith. It even eventually like shaped my heart as a worshiper and a songwriter. And then what's really sweet, I may have told you this before, but when our girls have to clean the kitchen, which is one of their daily chores, and often it can be like a really big job, but they will go over to our record player and they will pull out that very record, One More Song for You by the Imperials. And Nathan and I will come in, and the girls will have that record blasting while they're cleaning. And you have no idea how much that blesses me. And I'm sure it blesses God as that's been like passed down <laughs> from the generations. But it's kind of like those songs of ascent, I think, about these families on their way to worship, these songs that prepared their hearts for worship. So I think about the fact that they were probably familiar. These kids knew them by heart. But then I think about they were familial, like they were for families to sing together. And I absolutely love that. But this Psalm 124, you can look it up later. I just want to read just the first part or just kind of I know it by memory. It says basically the theme is our help is in the name of the Lord. And I love just this first line. It starts out and it says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. It doesn't mean that they didn't experience the fires and the floods. No, the the fires and the floods came, and they still come. But the point is, is our help is in the name of the Lord. And then they keep saying, if it had not been for the Lord on our side, where would we be? God uses those times of troubles and even the brokenness to further establish in us that He is our help in times of trouble. And even the floods and the fires of our lives, they help us embrace how God turns what the enemy means for evil, and He uses it for our good. I think even about like the name Watermark that Nathan and I used to be called when we were like, you know, husband and wife duo was the name of our band. But the name comes from this idea of being flooded by God's presence so much that our lives are marked forever. When I look back on this fire and this flood of of my family back when I was 17, I'm able to pinpoint particular ways that I could say, God, if it had not been for you on our side, I never would have seen this. I never would have seen the family of God that came around us in those days. It gives me hope and faith in the church as I think about even new friends that we had at that time who just came around us, 
many of them are still friends with my parents to this day. Some of those friends actually came to our Christmas concert in Tulsa this past December. And as I stood on the stage, I pointed out the fact that my parents were in the house. They were there, and some of their dear friends from Liberty Church were there. And I got super choked up as I was talking, like one of those times that I wasn't sure I was actually going to be able to keep talking, as God was literally having this thought rise up in me and giving me language on the spot in the moment that my family's restoration at that time was simultaneous with me being raised up as a worship leader. And that was just so beautiful to me that this brokenness had happened, but my family's restoration was also my raising up as a worship leader. Because in that church, uh, my worship leader, John Kilgore, saw me. Even just as a 17-year-old kid, he saw a worship leader in me. It was something that my parents had always seen in me, but for someone else to see it and actually have the platform to give me in that moment to lead on a consistent basis at the church— And before I knew it, I was on the worship team, and I was sometimes leading in front of a very large choir of people. John was the one who took us on choir tours as a youth choir. We would have, you know, so many kids packing out on these buses and going on these tours. And we would go into these churches and not only sing, but we were encouraged by John that we were worship leaders. John took it so seriously And he taught us to take it so seriously. In fact, his son, Ben Kilgore, and his wife, Noelle, they came to our Christmas show that night in Tulsa as well. And he and I kind of just started going down memory lane, telling our spouses about these amazing choir tours that we would go on. And Ben reminded me how we would actually, as just as teenagers, we would sing over the room as a youth choir before we sang each night, meaning that in the afternoons, kind of after we sound checked, before the night of the concert, we would all get in a circle around the sanctuary, sometimes circling even the seats in the room, and we would hold hands if we could reach. If not, we would just encircle this room, and we would lift our voices together as like a prayer over the room and over the people who were going to walk in that place that night. And we sang this song that said, He is here. Hallelujah. He is here. Amen. He is here. Holy, holy. I will bless His name again. He is here. Listen closely. Hear Him calling out your name. He is here. You can touch Him and you will never be the same. Experiences like that, especially as a teenager, That will mark you forever. But during that time of restoration, along with seeing the people of God around our family, I saw myself, I think, in a new way, as strange as that might sound. But I think part of walking with God is seeing yourself and where you are. And sometimes it takes something being really broken for us to feel again, to come alive to what's going on in our hearts and how God is engaging our hearts. And I also saw God like I never had before, authentically and from this posture, this sort of new posture of humility. I'm not sure I would have had that experience had life just charged ahead as normal. You might have had brokenness in your life, maybe in your family's life. It's so important how 
you see yourself in it and how you see God and how you move towards healing. We've talked about before that movement is healing, even when it hurts. Recovering from surgery, I've said it before, the times I had C-sections, I couldn't believe how quickly they wanted me to get on my feet again. But it matters that we start moving, even through the pain. Maybe you've experienced brokenness and you worry about your kids, if you're a parent, and the effect that that brokenness will have on them. God is big enough. He's big enough to hold them through your brokenness. And actually, God can use it in a really powerful way. So it's important, isn't it, how we respond and that we move towards healing. My friend Megan and I talked about this the other day over coffee, that repentance is a huge part of the equation in moving towards wholeness and healing and freedom. Repentance was a key factor for our family in the midst of the brokenness, and it was the gateway to healing. It was how I was able to enter the gate, who is Jesus, in a deeper way. So as I was saying, I told my friend Savannah that it was during those days that I raised my hands in worship for the very first time. It was just, you know, during this restoration time of our family in this church that would eventually become really significant in my journey. It was actually where Nathan and I got married only about five years after that. So I lifted my hands in worship and genuine abandonment and freedom to God in this very place that would become so dear to us. And even the name Liberty Church just says freedom to me. And this is what Savannah pointed out, which I thought was amazing. And I've never really heard this before, and I'm a worship leader, and it just like really struck me in the moment. But she said, you know, there's something actually really powerful about raising your hands during worship because it causes you to have to be bodily present, like along with your heart and along with your mind and what God's doing in you in that moment. So you kind of, all those things have to sort of come together. And when you lift your hands, you're sort of having to be completely present with the Lord and respond Sometimes when we have experienced trauma or brokenness, we sort of get separated in a way, like mind, body, and spirit. It actually kind of happens in order to cope. And I know for a fact that I have experienced that as a child and a teen, and even kind of in my adult life I have. I've experienced sort of not always feeling like I'm able to be where my feet are and sort of feeling separated from my body sometimes somehow. I know that sounds strange, but just not able to be fully present sometimes. So worship is this beautiful chance to be fully present with the God who made you. And when you lift your hands to Him, it's you being able to be fully present and aware of His presence. And we respond There's something very powerful about that act of trust and worship. And I've also learned that it's actually biblical. Some individuals and even churches as a whole are just able to be expressive in their worship. And some churches are able to foster a whole culture where there's just freedom to express. And we've talked before about the seven different words for praise. This is a message that's something 
really dear to my pastor, Darren Whitehead. In fact, um, I had him on the podcast before. You might remember that. And he wrote a little bit called Holy Roar with my friend Chris Tomlin. I call it little because it's just one that you can read sort of in a matter of days. But there's stories behind a lot of the songs that you probably sing at your steering wheel and at church or at home. But it's one that I love to reference over and over again as a worship leader. The subtitle says, Seven Words That Will Change the Way You Worship. And I think it's really true. The gist of it is that anytime the Bible says the word praise, it means actually one of seven different words. One of those words is yada, which means to worship with extended hands. And this is what I just talked about. So many times when the psalmist says, I praise you, God, he's actually saying, I lift my hands to you. So when you see an expressive church, you can actually be a really beautiful thing because it's actually a biblical thing. But I will say that what makes it beautiful and biblical is when it comes from this posture of our hearts, when it's an outward expression of our identity, really. And when it comes from our identity, I believe that this ministers to the heart of God like in a whole new way, which is what I've talked about in that last episode of blessing God with our lives and our worship. Expression and worship can be a touchy subject for some people, and I certainly understand that. Part of that's because there's just always going to be a bit of humanity in our worship on this side of heaven. But here's what I love to remember during worship. We are humanity, and our humanity is invited to join in with the heavenly. And that's something to lift our hands about. I love that. It's also kind of goes along with the glorious and the mundane. It's us being able to experience in the everyday what's actually meant for us to experience because we are also heavenly beings ourselves when we are in Christ. We have this new reality. So it's this beautiful mesh. We are called to sing a new song, which we've talked about before, but we're also joining in a song that has been sung around the throne of God day and night our entire lives, for ages upon ages. And every time we worship, we get to join in this song that's happening even now before the throne of God. This is Revelation 4. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. 
Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will— They were created and have their being. That stops me in my tracks when I think about those creatures day and night. They never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Last episode, we talked about magnifying God. And of course, this whole theme is come magnify the Lord with me. And bless Him in that way. We talked about blessing Him first and that the blessings come on us from that place. I want to encourage you that even though you don't feel called to ministry, actually you're a minister because you get to minister to the Lord. Uh, Many years ago, I was sitting in my living room on a weekday afternoon while I kind of had a minute to myself and I was needing to prepare a set list for church because I was leading that coming Sunday. And I have to be honest, I was spent— My body was tired. I even felt a little achy, like something was coming on, like a little cold or something. And I sat there, curled up in my chair, and I was sulking a bit because I was slated to leave that coming Sunday, but I was already not feeling good. And even had the thought, like, maybe I should just go ahead and reach out to someone to see if they could lead in my place. Well, the team from church was naturally asking me already for the set list, which was a part of my duties to get that to them midweek. And I was stressing about the set list, as I often did, because it needed to be great, of course. I had placed that pressure on myself, too, that it had to be right, it had to be on, it had to be great. So looking back, my posture was definitely that I was approaching God that day because He was useful rather than (laughs) approaching Him because He was beautiful, like we talked about last time. And I could feel that in my spirit that that was sort of my approach. It was probably really actually strategic of God that I was tired and not feeling good because it was this extra reminder that I was sort of kind of at the end of myself, kind of had nothing to give. This is actually sometimes a pretty beautiful place to be, though, because it actually gets us to admit to God that we need Him and that His promises are true, that His power is made perfect in our weakness. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I remember closing my eyes and just asking God for strength, admitting to Him that I was spent. And I told Him that I needed His wisdom, His direction. And instead of just plowing ahead, I remember I just asked Him, God, help me to remember who you are and who I am because of who you are. And He led me that day to Deuteronomy 10.8. And I know what you're thinking. It had to be the Lord because otherwise, how in the world did I end up in Deuteronomy. (laughs) But this is the power of the Word of God and how He hovers over it to accomplish it in us. And 
how He uses it in our everyday mundane. It's just a beautiful example, too, of how when we pray and ask the Spirit of God, He comes and He illuminates His Word for us. Um, Deuteronomy 10.8, it says, At that time, the Lord set apart the Levites to carry the Ark of the Covenant, to stand before the Lord to minister to Him, and to bless in His name as they do to this day. It was as if the words were highlighted in front of me as I was reading this first. Like the Spirit of God really did come and just like cause bold print to happen in some of these words. And I saw this order when I read that. At that time, the Lord set apart the Levites to carry the Ark of the Covenant, to stand before the Lord to minister to Him, and to bless in His name as they do to this day. The Levites at that time were set apart to teach the people about what God required in worship and how to follow Him. Often the Bible says that the Levites were there to also comfort the people. In fact, in those days, they were set apart for when the reading of the law happened over the people. It says that men and women and all who could understand would gather on the first day of the seventh month. In Nehemiah 8, we're told that Ezra, the scribe, would read the law over the people from morning until midday. Can you imagine? It says in verse 9 that the people wept aloud as they heard the words of the law. You get the sense here that the law was heavy over the people. It seems that they wept because of their sin but it also seems that it was just heavy. They possibly wept because the law just felt almost impossible to keep. So it says that the Levites calmed the people. They would say, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. They said, Go away and eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's where that verse comes from. So it says that the people, they would go their way rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The Levites had a huge role in that. Can you see the importance of the Levites there? It's amazing. So back to Deuteronomy 10.8, it says, At that time, the Lord set apart the Levites to carry the physical Ark of the Covenant, which at that time, you know, signified God's dwelling among the people. It was representative of His presence with them at the time. So they carried the presence of God. And then it says, they stood before the Lord to minister to Him. And that was what stopped me in my tracks that day. As I sat there in my chair, I was overcome kind of with emotion, actually. In fact, because I remember that I started repenting of all the times that I've stood on a stage to lead worship with my little set list that I prepared with the main goal of helping people engage with God and worship. And I know what you're thinking, what's wrong with that? (laughs) At the heart of it, actually nothing really, but what God was showing me here was more of that bullseye living that we talked about He was lifting the weariness I was feeling by showing me yet again that there's this order to even my worship leading and even as we worship Him, that I'm first and foremost a carrier of His presence before I'm a worship leader. And as a carrier of His presence, what comes first in that order is to stand before the Lord and to minister to Him that really kind of broke my heart that day in the most beautiful way. It flooded me all over again what a privilege it is to get to lead people in worship because the way and the order in which I actually get to lead the people is 
that we bless God first, that we get to minister to Him first above all things. We get to come and lay on Him all the glory He deserves and to minister to His heart. And the last part of that verse says, and then pronounce blessings over the people as they do to this day. This showed me that the simple overflow of me blessing and ministering to God would actually bring the blessing over the people that I'm leading. It would come out of the overflow of me focusing on blessing and ministering to God first. So I was able to see this order all of a sudden, and I was so excited to lead that Sunday because I just thought, what, what an honor to get to stand before people, yes, but to really walk in being a carrier of God's presence and to be able to face Him, to stand before the Lord. That word stand there actually means to face. And I have to think, you know, it's sort of this, where else would I go? It's like my countenance and my face and my heart is lifted to you, God. And this is a privilege that I get to stand before you as a carrier of your presence and minister to you today. And then in that pronounce blessings over the people. This actually helped me to ultimately release the people that I'm leading in worship. I know that sounds maybe a little bit strange to you to need to release the people as I'm leading worship, but you need to know that worship leaders long for the congregation to respond as they lead. At the heart of it, leaders long for the church to feel freedom and to release you know, their expression to God. We talked about lifting our hands. They want you to feel freedom to do that. But what can happen sometimes as a leader is we're often too dialed in to the response of the congregation that we can even begin to base how we're doing as a worship leader on how much the congregation is responding. And after a while, this can wear you down as a leader and make you really weary and self-conscious as a leader So after I read those words in Deuteronomy that afternoon, I suddenly, you know, like I said, I couldn't wait to lead on Sunday. Suddenly it wasn't about me having to get a response out of the people. I could actually release the people to God. I didn't need to be hungry for them to respond to the worship songs I picked. I was hungry in my heart to learn what it looked like to minister to God and to see if what I thought He'd promised in those verses would really happen as I focused on ministering to Him that the blessing would actually pour over the people out of that overflow. I've got to believe that you will be ministered to as you minister to God. Everything you need will come from that place of ministering to Him, as we said, magnifying Him above our plot lines and our circumstances and the things that we worry about, the things that we're anxious about. It's really beautiful how it works, that a blessing will be pronounced over us and then over the people that we encounter all week as we embody that we're we're the church out in the lost world, but we're responding to our Father, and hopefully it's causing the people around us to respond as well. I've told you about the family hug, the spontaneous moments through the years since our kids have been really little just these times that I've just reached out to hug Nathan in the kitchen, and then the kids would come running to get in on it. When Noah was itty-bitty, he would run and wrap his arms around you know Nathan's leg, and the three of us would stand there in our little family hug, not saying anything because we didn't want to like, you know, jinx the moment. <laughs> and when we had Ellie and then Annie, you know, they got in on it too. They spontaneously would do the same thing, and they'd run to get in on the hug. And there's never been a word even spoken about it. It's just something that's happened. 
But one day as it was happening, it was the all five of us. We were, it was, I remember it was in our Georgia house. The kids were little. And God spoke to me as clear as day. And he said, this is like leading worship, isn't it? And as I just we stood there, you know, it's just quiet. I thought, wow. I thought about the fact that the kids responded to me embracing Nathan, in this case, the father. It's the same with living a life of worship. When we embrace the father, the people that we're leading are compelled to do the same. Think about how this is just true of our lives every day. When we stay in the embrace with the Father, our eyes fixed on Him, magnifying Him above all, above our circumstances, holding up even our wounds from the fires and the floods, thanking Him that they mark us and they give us new vision to see more clearly and distinctly. The people around us, even if you have little ones right there in your house today, or maybe it's the person next to you in the cubicle at work, how might you embrace the Father and minister to Him today that would actually send a blessing over them, pronounce blessings over the people all around you today? It blesses me so much when I stop and think of the impact of all of your lives and how much you must bless God when you approach Him and worship Him and magnify Him and choose to bless Him. It just makes me smile. I love all of you guys, and I will talk to you soon.